This is Frankly Speaking by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Frankly Speaking is your go-to on all things peace, security and defense. Original content, original thought. Well, good day to all and welcome back to our podcast uh, organized by the uh, peace, security, defense team of, of Friends of Europe in, in, in Brussels. Uh, my name is Jamie Shea. Uh, I'm a senior fellow uh, at Friends of Europe working on peace, security and defense. Uh, hopefully many of you remember our podcast uh, from uh, the time that we launched it last year. We've had a little technical break for reasons beyond our control uh, over the summer months, but now we're back and we hope that you, dear audience, will be back with us too, not just for today, uh, but for the series of commentaries that will follow. I'm delighted uh, for this uh, Comeback Kid uh, session to be joined once more by my fellow senior fellow uh, for Peace, Security and Defence of Friends of Europe, Paul Taylor. Uh, he needs no introduction, but courtesy demands that I give him one nonetheless. Uh, former diplomatic correspondent of Reuters, uh, posted all, all around the globe, uh, a long-standing commentator on EU, NATO and strategic affairs, uh, more recently columnist with uh, Politico and now columnist with The Guardian uh, newspaper. So, Paul, thanks a lot for uh, joining me again uh, today. Well, uh, because we haven't been on air for a while, dear listeners, uh, we've got quite a lot to catch up on. Now, you recall that our focus is the war in Ukraine, uh, not just the military day-to-day, uh, issues, but the broader political and diplomatic context uh, as well, because the war in Ukraine has not only shaken Europe and the transatlantic community profoundly, uh, but also large parts of the world. So we'll try to sort of uh, go narrow at the beginning to see what's happening or been happening on the ground in Ukraine uh, and then broaden the uh, perspective uh, before we close. So, Paul, uh, I said thanks. So uh, good to see you. Good to hear you. Uh, and let's therefore get started. Well, um, the, mo the, the months in which we've been off the air have been marked by the Ukrainian spring, although it was really launched in the summer, uh, counter-offensive. Enormous hopes were, were vested in this counter-offensive, particularly after the military successes that Ukraine had against Russia uh, towards the end of last year, uh, regaining uh, territory uh, south of Kharkiv in the north, uh, regaining Kherson uh, in the south. Uh, potentially opening a route to, to uh, the Black Sea coast and, 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 and Crimea. Uh, and there were great hopes that the long-prepared counter-offensive would slice through the Russian lines uh, and would finish the war by uh, Christmas so that we would be spared a, a long, drawn-out war of attrition. Well, it hasn't quite happened that way, Paul, uh, has it? So give us your take on where the Ukrainians are today. Uh, recently, they have sort of claimed and We've got indications that they're being modestly, modestly more successful, uh, at least in terms of breaking through some of the Russian first lines and perhaps opening up prospects that they could achieve uh, more success before people believe they would be forced to stop by the mud and the onset of winter, whether that's true or not. So uh, uh, are they uh, uh, kidding us or uh, do you really think that uh, this spring offensive, despite the slow start, could uh, bring uh, some prospects of a early end to the war still yet. Over to you, Paul. Well, Jamie, I think, thank you. It's difficult to uh, to tell because we're still in the fog of war. But I think what we can say is there was a great deal of wishful thinking around, uh, particularly after the way in which Ukrainian forces recaptured the Kharkiv area and uh, uh, the town and city of Kherson, 
last year. And that led to a, a probably exaggerated belief that they would be able to slice through this time, as you described. Um, they seem to be unable to penetrate uh, 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 sufficiently the layered Russian defenses uh, to cut the land bridge to Crimea uh, before the what the what Russians call the Rasputitsa, the muddy season, uh, sets in. Um, and that means that Ukraine um, uh, has uh, recognized, I think, this to some extent and changed tactics uh, and is doing some very spectacular things uh, to make the Russians feel vulnerable, to expose and attrit their rear, um, but also uh, the ability to hit headquarters and demoralize both Russian forces in the occupied territories and to an extent rattle the Russian population with drone attacks on Moscow and elsewhere. Um, that is, is not a strategy uh, for achieving a decisive breakthrough this year uh, that will lead to forcing Russia perhaps to the table. Um, uh, I, I don't think that that looks likely to happen, um, but it certainly is um, not standing still, and it gives Ukraine uh, a reasonable chance um, of uh, staying, more than staying in the game, without losing too many of its forces, because I think the initial attempt to uh, uh, tackle those very well-set uh, layered defenses uh, trenches, barriers, and so on, probably cost a lot of Ukrainian lives. Again, we we are, we we don't have uh, statistics, but um, we have some assessments by uh, Western intelligence and defense ministries to the extent that they're prepared to give them, which suggest that was the case. Well, Paul, uh, yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? Uh, they they're in a bit of a dilemma because they've got to advance. Uh, to show that all of the Western support is, is justified, that uh, they are a cause worth backing. Um, but on the other hand, they have to do it in a cautious way, as you say, that doesn't sort of unnecessarily cost them limited amounts of equipment and resources. So getting that balance between sort of uh, advance uh, but uh, conservation must be uh, difficult. But you do get the impression, Paul, uh, even if maybe Western leaders are not going to say it publicly on the record, that there's now a correlation between the Ukrainian ability to sort of advance and uh, have military success, uh, achieve objectives, yeah, is linked to the continuing sort of will to fund in the West, the will to fight versus the will to fund. Um, what would you think would be sort of the benchmarks that the Ukrainians would need to have in mind, you know, that we've got at least to do this or get this far uh, if we're going to sort of get the support needed for another offensive uh, uh, next year? Do you think there is that sort of at least that unspoken correlation setting in? I mean, a couple of months ago, you remember the motto was, as long as it takes, you know, we're, we're in it for the long haul, uh, no limits. Uh, but But you don't quite feel that that really is the mood now, do you? No, you don't. And I think that's partly um, because we're heading into electoral seasons. There are electors, important elections going on in the next few weeks in Central Europe, which will uh, we may come to, which will really determine the degree of, uh, of support that uh, uh, Ukraine can expect from its immediate neighbors. That in turn will have knock-on effects, I think, in Western Europe. Uh, and of course, everybody sees the uh, juggernaut of the US election coming up the pike uh, uh, with... Uh, uh, Ex-President Trump as the front runner uh, for the Republican nomination, uh, despite his legal problems, uh, and he is very clearly 
said he doesn't he won't give lots more money uh he thinks the europeans should be doing the paying uh and he wants to end the uh the war as quickly as possible you know in 24 hours he said uh if he gets back into the white house so um that must be obviously um concentrating minds on both sides so i think the russians are probably looking forward to that and pretty determined to hold out uh until they see who wins the us uh uh, elections. Uh, and on the Ukrainian side, they must realize that they have potentially a window between now and then, which will may start to close as uh, additional funds from the Congress may become more diff- uh, difficult um, and in, in which to achieve uh, decisive progress. I think, though, as I said, uh, it, it's not easy to measure success under these circumstances. Um, I think most people... Uh, Imagine that, that, that there would be a, first a successful blitz, blitzkrieg by Russia. Uh, President Putin himself seems to imagine that he could, you know, capture Ukraine within uh, days or, or weeks. Um, and then, you know, there was some uh, wishful thinking around on the Western side uh, after Ukraine's summer offensive last year. So uh, both of those have been proved wrong. Uh, and now um, it is about... Uh, preparing for and uh, try and, and making sure uh, Ukraine uh, can prevail in a long war. What do you think of the um, the, the strengths and weaknesses uh, on the Russian side? You know, the great Bismarck once said that Russia is never as strong nor as weak uh, as it seems. And uh, we we've you spoke, of course, about the Ukrainian strikes uh, on Russia, or Crimea. The, the Ukrainians claim to have killed the. Uh, commander of the uh, Black Sea Fleet in, in that strike on the naval headquarters in Sebastopol, uh, Admiral Viktor Sokolov and 34 officers. If that's true, that would be quite a coup for them. Uh, and looking at the news today, it seems that President Putin is angry with his defense minister Shoigu for repeatedly failing uh, with the Russian attempts at a counteroffensive. Uh, and uh, for not meeting deadlines uh, uh, for ending the conflict successfully for for Russia, so it's not easy to gauge. Uh, you know, beyond the, you mentioned the fog of war or the propaganda, the propaganda smokescreen, it's not easy to gauge uh, exactly. You know what Russia's vulnerabilities are at the moment. I mean, so two sort of questions: one on the military side, uh, how do you see Russia's ability to keep the war going? Although predictions that they were going to run out of missiles. Uh, they struck Odessa yesterday, uh, all of the strikes on grain silos, energy infrastructure, predictions that they were going to run out of missiles certainly don't seem to be panning out. Uh, but So how would you set, uh, 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 sort of assess their um, their will to fight on the military side? And if the West is still hoping you know, to put the squeezes on them in terms of sanctions, diplomatic isolation, you know, depriving them, depriving them of the things that they need to continue to prosecute the war, uh, you know, are we at the limit of what we can do, or are there still things that we could usefully consider in the in the weeks ahead? Well, I think Russia's strengths um, include just demography. It's got three times the population of Ukraine, and that means more recruits, more cannon fodder, if you like. Endurance. Russia is a country that has a a long history of endurance during long wars. Um, think uh, Napoleon's campaigns. Think of Hitler's campaigns, and the way that Russia. Uh, was able to endure enormous hardship in order to come back. Um, the, 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 that, that goes with the strategic depth that Russia has of all of those uh, thousands of kilometers. Um, uh, it, it, the, there is an absence of public opposition 
to the war in Russia, um, you know, uh, which is something, you know, President Putin may not have enthusiastic support for the war, but he doesn't face any active opposition, really, um, uh, uh, within the country. There's there are Russian exiles, obviously, who are very opposed to the war, and there are people who are quietly opposed to the war at home, but they're not going out demonstrating, and they're not really, other than the the the, the would be you know the, the the recruits who are who are voting with their feet by leaving the country. Um, uh, then you've got Russia's industrial capacity. They do seem to be able to step up their, their military industries. The, 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 the one can question the quality of what they are able to produce and whether a sanctions have attrited uh, key components such as microchips and so on. But the fact is they've been able to step up their industrial capacity. As you say, they're still uh, um, put, put, you know, pouring out missiles and drones. Um, and they, you know, Russia is a country with vast national natural resources, and it's still able to sell its oil and its gas, albeit at a discount, uh, and no longer mostly to to Europe. Um, but it is still able to to shift lots of oil and gas um, through Asia. Um, and so, you know, the other uh, great resource it has, if you like, um, is the uh, is that it has some allies. Uh, or, or friends with valuable niche capabilities, such as Iran, which uh, makes um, missiles and drones. Um, North Korea, uh, again, you know, which makes uh, missiles uh, and, 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 and other equipment that could be useful, including ammunition uh, to the Russians. And the North Korean leaders just had a visit with President Putin, where presumably they talked about that. Um, uh, and then China which um, we don't know how far China is assisting uh, Russia. China is clearly being very cautious about directly transferring military equipment, but there seem to have been other things on the fringes, including components, uh, 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 protective equipment and stuff like that, which China's uh, been sending. Uh, and of course, China has the capability to do a lot more if it judges that that's necessary. Um, Russia's weaknesses, well, the low morale amongst its soldiers and its officers, uh, the poor command that we've seen so far, uh, uh, very much in evidence, uh, although they've done a, clearly a better job of, of building and defending these defensive lines that they've built around the, the occupied territories in, uh, in eastern uh, um, and southern Ukraine. Um, Poor logistics uh, along long logistic uh, lines, which uh, are vulnerable to uh, to attack. Um, corruption, clearly there's uh, a lot of corruption in, in the whole Russian military system. Uh, and old thinking, old thinking in terms of tactics, old thinking in terms of training, old, um, old thinking uh, in the sense that uh, uh, commanders on the ground uh, don't have much autonomy to it. But, uh, the kind of autonomy that Western uh, uh, commanders have on the ground and the kind of autonomy that Ukrainian commanders have used so successfully. On the yeah. Ukrainian side, I think the, the, the great strength is the unbroken morale of the country, uh, the extraordinary determination to defend uh, their soil, their territory, um, their uh, adaptability, their technical innovation, their extraordinary ability to use apps, to use to, to jerry-rig uh, civilian equipment, to upgrade uh, uh, old equipment they have from the Soviet era. Um, their ma the massive 
Western financial uh, support, intelligence support, uh, and growing support with materiel as well. Uh, yeah. I think Paul, I want to come in. Yeah, I want to come in here though. Sorry to yeah. interrupt, but I but I wanted to come in here because you you segue uh, very nicely to uh, what I wanted to ask you. You 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 are on the part of the uh, dependency of Ukraine on this uh, Western support, international support, diplomatic, yeah. financial, military. But last week was not a particularly good one for President Zelensky, was it? I mean, he he went off to Washington and you know he didn't get his uh, second appearance before a joint session of Congress. Uh, he had a bit of a rough ride in the House of Representatives uh, with Kevin McCarthy and his Republicans, uh, particularly on Biden's attempts to get funding another $24 billion for uh, military assistance to Ukraine. Um, and uh, uh, you know, clearly there is a sense that you know this is now the funding from the U.S. in terms of these packages that have been announced nearly every week by the United States are going to become more difficult. So how significant is that? But also in Europe, you know, there was the spat with Poland over uh, the Polish prime minister uh, saying that uh, Poland would not supply uh, new weapons uh, to uh, Ukraine, the spat over Ukrainian grain deliveries. Uh, again, this morning, you know, waking up and taking a quick look at the headlines, we've got Viktor Orban of Hungary saying that uh, Hungary will veto any international assistance for Ukraine uh, until Ukraine resolves the issue of the Hungarian-speaking minority uh, in that country. You've got the presumed winner of the Slovak elections, uh, Robert Fico, saying that uh, if he becomes the leader of Slovakia after the elections next weekend, he's going to veto uh, Ukraine's uh, NATO membership. I mean, are we now seeing you know, really serious cracks in this Western front that are sold up very well? Or would you say, well, all right, you know, storms in teacups, uh, Hungary, Slovakia, well, you know, they can make noises, but they're not the decisive players here. The US, we're only dealing with a small fringe of hard right Republicans who don't really represent the mainstream. I mean, you know, if you're President Zelensky, uh, you know, should you be seriously worried now by what you're seeing both in Europe and the United States? I think you have to take it in, into account if you're President uh, Zelensky. We are seeing a degree of Ukraine fatigue um, in the U.S. Congress and in Central Europe as the cost of U U.S. military support and the cost of living consequences of the war in Europe bite. Um, but I think, you know, public support for Ukraine's cause remains very strong, according to opinion polling, both in the United States and in Europe. Um, where What we're seeing is that where backing Ukraine hurts specific interest groups, such as Polish farmers, then domestic politics prevail, especially uh, in election season. Um, to an alarming degree, however, this war will, will turn uh, on the U.S., presidential election next year. Yeah, uh, yeah. If Donald Trump wins in November uh, uh, 2024, uh, well, you know, Ukraine's prospects plummet, I would say, uh, and Kiev may well have to settle uh, for some perhaps interim deal uh, in which it doesn't recover all the occupied territory. That at the moment is absolutely anathema. Indeed, beginning negotiations is still an anathema in uh, Ukraine. And of course, that could be politically deadly uh, for President Zelensky as well, because Ukraine is a democracy, um, even if we don't know yet whether they will be able to hold uh, a presidential election that they're supposed to hold uh, in March next year. Um, but uh, clearly, you know, his 
political prospects at home are linked to uh, being a winner uh, in the war. Yeah, Paul, if the US sort of drops out, or, or at least, as you say, scales back its assistance, is, is the EU, which of course has stepped up its own defence role uh, and assisted Ukraine quite significantly too, doesn't get as much publicity or visibility for that as uh, the United States, but it's significant. You know, are, are the Europeans, or we could sort of include maybe the Brits here as well, uh, although they're outside the EU now, are, are they in a position politically, militarily, financially to pick up the slack? Or will, you know, decreased US aid inevitably also depress uh, what the Europeans feel that they should be doing? Well, they, they will be under greater pressure than they are or, already uh, to deliver more. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the, the low-hanging fruit has already been plucked. They've, they, they've passed on to uh, uh, Ukraine a lot of the equipment that they had in their inventories, which was able to use and which they didn't want to keep. Uh, and we're seeing with this ammunition uh, initiative taken by the EU of promising uh, a million rounds of ammunition uh, and including ammunition collectively procured from uh, by the EU from uh, European uh, manufacturers that it, it, it's very very difficult uh, there are difficulties this has never been done before in this way uh, there are difficulties in terms of uh, uh, the the components explosives in particular prices have gone through the roof difficulty in contracts difficulty uh, in great uh, sensitivities between national governments and the the EU about who controls what as well um, it, it's about power within the EU so I think that yes the EU could or EU countries and, and and including the UK could perhaps do a bit more than they've done, but I don't think it would replace what the United States is able to do. And I think that without strong American leadership, uh, it would you know you'd you'd have to look for some other political leader in Europe who would be prepared to to lead that charge. Yeah, uh, I Paul, you, I, I take your point there. I mean, I was interested that you know to see that when the Polish Prime Minister. Uh, I, I refer to it, uh, said that Poland could not supply new weapons to Ukraine. He was at pains to sort of stress that this was not being ungenerous. It, it was simply that Poland had run out of all of the existing stocks of weapons. Uh, uh, it, it had depleted its own army in order to supply Ukraine. And therefore, for its own defense, it now needed to sort of give the priority to resupplying its own forces. So if, if that's the case with Poland, a big supporter of Ukraine, big defense budget, um, uh, uh, lots of defense contracts, uh, then presumably it's the case with lots of European countries. Uh, others well, yeah. have simply run out of things that they can supply, at least for the time being, until industrial production steps up and they're able to sort of churn out more tanks and armored vehicles and ammunition and spare parts. But but uh, let me not ask you to respond to that because uh, we've only got a few minutes left. And I said at the beginning that we always look look at the broader geopolitical scene. And before I let you go, I'd like to sort of ask you about all of this activity that we've seen recently, where the West, you know, conscious of the fact that the global South has been rather disengaged uh, on the war in Ukraine, has not seen it as its conflict. Uh, conscious of you know the attempts by Russia and China with the expansion of the BRICS, for example, to form their own front, uh, 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 their own sort of alternative alliance. Uh, you mentioned you know Russia drawing closer to North Korea. Uh, Shoigu, the defense minister of Russia, has been in Iran. You referred to all of this. So uh, you know, we we looked last week, uh, well, a couple of weeks ago, the G20, 
uh, in, in New Delhi. We've seen uh, last week with the UN General Assembly, as I say, a big attempt, a charm offensive by the West, try to get the global South uh, back on side. Um, how successful are these attempts, do you think? And, and you know, is this kind of charm offensive likely to have any impact at all? Well, you know, I agree uh, diplomatically, Jamie, uh, Russia and China really staged a, a show of force with the BRICS summit that took place in South Africa, even if President Putin wasn't able to attend. That was a reality check, I think, for the United States and Europe uh, on the degree to which many emerging nations, emerging powers, want to free themselves from Western dominance. They may not agree among themselves on very much. I mean, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia or other, you know, there are plenty of incompatibilities in there, uh, 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 India and China. Uh, but one thing, some of the things they want to agree, they agree on is they don't want to be so dependent on the West. They don't want the West to be running the world. They don't want the rest to be uh, controlling key things like financial flows, the internet, and so on. Um, and, and that's what, what, what unites them. Um, on the, on the other side, you know, I think that Western countries may have regained some ground since then by paying more attention to developing nations, notably at the G7 and the G20 summits. Uh, the Western countries are much more forward-leaning on debt relief. They included for the first time and uh, the African Union uh, uh, as a, a full member of the uh, G20, the world's uh, sort of top table that includes uh, emerging uh, powers. Russia, the Russian and Chinese leaders stayed away from the UN General Assembly uh, 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 this month, which has given the United States an opportunity to court developing nations. Um, but I think that, you know, that the attitude of, of, of the countries, which I, I don't like to call the global South, to be honest, because I don't think they're really united. Yeah, uh, so, so that's but, a fair point there. Yeah. But, you know, I, uh, the attitude of, of those countries is really uh, uh, very much one of hedging and of transactionalism. They finally have, are able to play outside powers off against each other for their own interests. And their own interests uh, are about development. They're about finance. Uh, they're also about having more say in world affairs and having a bigger seat uh, 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 in in in, the, in in trade, uh, in uh, the internet and the digital uh, universe, uh, in the financial universe, the payment systems, and so on, and those are things that the West needs to, I think, pay uh, greater attention to uh, and long-term attention. Where we are so short-termist, and our attention is so easily distracted by yeah. other issues. Uh, Paul, uh, I, 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 looking at the clock, I've got one minute um, before we need to close. So I, I can squeeze in a, 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 a quick last question, but of course, it's also going to mean a quick last answer. Um, you, like me, you're a, a reader of the, the Economist, and I was very intrigued by this week's sort of front page, which sort of said, you know, Ukraine time for a rethink or something along those lines. And I was intrigued because you know, most of us think, well, you know, there's no room really for a rethink. Uh, we have to help the Ukrainians to prevail. They have to liberate their territory. They have to survive as a functioning state. Russia has to limp off the battlefield, you know, uh, and pay a price for the conflict. Those have been, if you like, the sort of unbending principles. So, uh, you know, do you think the economists got it wrong in suggesting we need a, 
uh, a rethink, or is there room for at least a rethink in some areas? But you're going to have to be quick on this one, Paul, yeah. uh, and maybe we'll develop it in more depth, uh, dear listeners, uh, in our next podcast. I don't think the rethink that they were recommending was about supporting Ukraine less. It was about supporting Ukraine differently for a long war. And that means you need to uh, uh, do things like provide better air defenses so that they are better shielded from missile and uh, drone assaults and so on. If you think things are going to be ended by uh, one sudden offensive, uh, then you might not concentrate so much on that. So it's preparing for a long war. And the same is true of uh, 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 the need uh, uh, financially, economically, to build Ukrainian industry and support Ukrainian industry and the economy now, rather than spending a lot of time focusing on a reconstruction effort, which might come later. So it's things like that, I think, that The Economist recommends. And I think that that only makes common sense. Makes if you sense. want to dress it up, put it, if you want to dress it up, put it on the front page of a magazine and call it a rethink, uh, maybe it sells copy. Okay, well, it certainly got me uh, uh, to, to buy a, a, a copy. Um, so, uh, Paul Taylor, uh, thanks uh, so much for guiding us through all of the uh, developments over the last few months and also looking into the future as well. Uh, you mentioned at the end that uh, we look as if we're in for a long war, and that also means that we're going to have lots, uh, unfortunately, maybe, because nobody wants a long war in Ukraine, but at least we're going to have lots of things to comment on in the podcast as we go uh, forward, looking at all of the aspects. So before I close, I'd like to thank uh, Katerina Villanova, uh, our new press and communications person at Friends of Europe, uh, as, uh, who has agreed to be our producer. Uh, this is the first podcast, so Katerina, thanks. So we look forward to working with you on many podcasts to come. Uh, uh, like Frank Sinatra, uh, we're capable of endless comebacks, uh, and I uh, uh, hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, and uh, we'll be back uh, very soon. But for now, uh, greetings from London, uh, greetings from Saint-Rémy-en-Provence, from Paul Taylor, greetings from Catalina from Brussels, uh, and over and out. <laughs> <laughs>